Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, it's Paul Ashton. I'm here today with uh, Jason Rodenbeck, and uh, we want to talk today about the upcoming uh, uh, PBI class, the Plowshares Bible Institute class, but not just that. We want to talk about um, a theological approach uh, to the book of Matthew that uh, Jason is going to be teaching. And Jason, you're employing two theologians, which already is kind of unusual. I think Brazos Press has uh, begun a commentary series, and maybe is this the Matthew commentary? Is that the first in the series? I believe it was the first in the series, and um, uh, in and I don't know that they've gotten terribly far. I, I remember uh, reading a quote from one of the contributors to that commentary series. Uh, it may have even been Hauerwas, but um, something along the lines of, we thought, yeah, this would be a really great idea to have a theological, uh, biblical commentary series. And then we got started writing it and went, oh, my goodness, how are we ever going to write theological commentaries on the Bible? Yeah. Um, it's a bigger task than I, than I think that anybody uh, would initially um, assume. But uh, Matthew, I believe, was the first. And uh-huh. um, it came along about, for me, about uh, halfway through uh, uh my experience preaching through the gospel of Matthew, which I talk about all the time was a three year, three and a half year um, project for me. And that's, uh, I just, uh, I mean, Howard writes his introduction and actually in his, he's more pithy. And when he talks about it, he's, you know, his, his usual thing. Well, damn, now I've got to write the thing, you know, that, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, I admit maybe the quote I was thinking of. <laughs> Uh, and it was his idea, and he thought it was a great idea. And it seems, you know, people have said about Horowitz, well, it must be nice to have your own press, and because <laughs> they seem to the people, they seem to be his students um, that are there at Brazos, and so have taken his lead. But of course, the idea in it is that we often imagine that in just doing an exegetical commentary that in some way we're going to be more ecumenical and orthodox. And I think the point in a theological commentary is, well, no, actually we can take the basics of the Nicene Creed and uh, recognize that the theological paradigm is a lens through which we can, you know, uh, it makes sense of, uh, you know, that's certainly, I just finished the book of John and, you know, imagine trying to read the book of John without doing theology or without drawing theological conclusions. It's a near, you know, it would be a flat, boring, uh, confusing sort of project. And of course, I think the, the point is, well, as with John, so with the other Gospels, that they're all doing a theology. You know, if I had to summarize the the uh, theology of John in terms of salvation, uh, it, it is that salvation is deliverance from this darkness, this lie, this deception, 
this cosmos, you know, John uses the language and then he gives us the logic of the lie. If I would ask you about Matthew or maybe Horowitz's or you're, and you're also using Dietrich Bonhoeffer to sum up what is the atonement theory, what is the, uh, or maybe that's the wrong way to put it. What is, how is salvation depicted in Matthew? Well, uh, something you said a few minutes ago about, and I can't remember the uh, the exact wording. Um, you said uh, sort of a dry, boring sort of approach um, when uh, in, in an attempt to just sort of do a straight exegetical sort of reading. It strikes me that much of what passes for um, evangelical teaching it suffers from exactly that. Uh, that's those symptoms that that in attempting to um, to avoid having this sort of theological approach, you end up with something that's sort of dry and boring. When when I first started preaching through Matthew at uh, the church I was preaching at, um, it was shocking. Uh, again, I, I'm always afraid I'm just repeating myself too much, but it was shocking um, how how interesting folks were finally finding Jesus. Um, in that um, th- that he seemed to be saying things that seemed really interesting and um, different from what they'd heard before. In, in my mind, wh- what we one of the things that we uh, uh, suffer from is this myth that we can be objective about uh, our reading of the scripture by breaking things down into the Greek. Um, not to say Greek exegesis isn't an important and vital study, um, but by by looking at the historical cultural context and and breaking that down, that somehow we've achieved an objectivity that allows us to get to the heart of a text apart from yeah apart from a um a theological reading when the the problem with that isn't in my mind necessarily the effort to do that but you can't but the myth of objectivity itself you're never reading it apart from some central set of assumptions about about what the gospel is to begin with and so um admitting that you're doing a theological reading um, isn't a failure. It is actually, it is actually recognizing that and saying that. Whereas I think if you think, if you say we're just going to do this straight up exegetical reading, um, in a, in essence, you're f- fooling yourself into thinking that, and you're still doing a theolo- We're all reading it theologically, and, and so yes, is, we, if it's bad theology, or whether it's, and that seems to be. I mean, I, you know, that's the problem with the harmonies that mm-hmm. uh, there. And maybe my question was already in the typical historical critical approach that I think somebody said, well, wait a minute. That's already a bad question to ask. Mm-hmm. What is the, the picture of salvation in Matthew? Uh, they'd say, oh, well, no, there's no picture of salvation there. That's just the stories of, you know, the life of Christ, or that's, we don't really get to that salvation stuff until you get to the epistles. And so the historical, there is this assumption behind the historical critical objectivity 
is the kind of idea that if you produce the history, that the history is in some way, and the, the Gospels as history, are in some way separate from the theology of the epistles. But of course, I think that's precisely wrong, that what is taking place in the letters of the New Testament is a building upon the theology uh, that is in, it's there in the life of Christ, and that we've just failed to, to recognize that salvation, atonement, you know, the confrontation with evil. Uh, no, that's all there in the life of Christ. And to imagine that it's in some way history devoid of theology is a category mistake. It's absolutely a category mistake. And it it's made uh, differently on both sides of the classic spectrum of liberal and conservative theology. Um, in, in the churches I grew up in, the, the sort of conservative approach, um, we never talked about the Gospels, ever, um, to, the, to the point of they were just these cute little children's stories, which was, again, why the folks that I preached to at the time found it so interesting when you started uh, telling the story of Jesus and, and uh, telling the, the story of the people that he was around and what it is they, the world that they lived in. And, and they started to, um, and they started to identify with the kinds of things that the people that he was talking to um, experienced. All of a sudden, uh, when Jesus would say something, uh, to the effect of go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me or Zacchaeus, you come down, um, which is uh, Luke, <laughs> not Matthew, but um, at least I think so. The um, uh, All of a sudden, those stories that we had sung songs about in, in Sunday school and that we sort of associated with childish stories had all kinds of special significance and we could see ourselves in them. Um, and I think that's the thing that, that Matthew does exceptionally well is um, articulates a, a, a gospel um, that is very different from Jewish expectations. It, it, it's a very different kind of king of a very different kind of kingdom. And that is, I think, the salvation that Matthew is going to draw out. Jesus is showing you an alternative kingdom one that's for broken people, one that's for messed up people, one that appeals to the people that this world, um, that this world is ready to forget. And I assume already that, you know, that just this, this conversation to talk about the Gospels as introducing the kingdom may already, in other words, we've already made, you've jumped to a theological conclusion. Or a, a theological starting. Yeah, um, I, I'm not. I hope that the conclusion that I'm ready to jump to is the same one that you probably are ready to jump to. Um, but that the kingdom is it, it's a it's a it's an alternative to the the power structures of the kingdom of this mm -hmm. world. Now, N.T. Wright is um, it, it has been very much opposed to using uh, that sort of two-kingdom worldview, and I don't mean it in quite the same way that he does. 
Um, but that this world does have a specific uh, value system and power structure that Jesus' kingdom is an alternative to, and that is salvation, um, a, a new way of living that um, undermines the foundational principles that our, that our entire uh, culture and our entire history is based on. Um, that's and about that, power. Yeah. And, oh, well, that, well, there you've hit the, the, the keynote, I think. I shouldn't cover that up. But um, the, the, and I, I assume that when we, I'm curious when you say the word kingdom, how powerless, and you are using the, the, his approach that he would, you know, I think take the notion that the kingdoms of this world in some way, or, or to correct me because I have not read the commentary, uh, are in fact uh, like as in John. In other words, they're false kingdoms. They're kingdoms that don't stand up. They're kingdoms that it's not exactly that they uh, that um, they are have any substance even in and of themselves. And so the kingdom that Christ is introducing is not simply a counterculture. Or, or maybe I'm saying that wrong. Maybe that is precisely what Howard does. And that, that N.T. Wright would say, well, no, that, that in other words, there would be a bit of disagreement. There. Yeah, I think N.T. Wright, um, where N.T. Wright is correct about um, that this, that the gospel is for this world. Um, N.T. Wright seems to take exception to the, the idea that when we say that uh, my kingdom is not of this world, that we mean that it has nothing to do with this world, um, which um, if, if you look very hard, you'll, you'll see people on conservative and liberal sides who both sort of act that way as if it has nothing to do with this world. Um, where I feel like N.T. Wright's tension is, and I, I assume it come, he gets it honest that it's a, a product of his um, of his uh, uh, relationship with the Church of England, um, in which uh, the, that church is a functional part of the state. Um, that he can't hardly help. But feel like um, that this king, this is supposed to sort of be a um, and have an effect on on the kingdom of the world or on the world. It's part of the world. Um, I think Hauerwas, um is influenced more by um, Yoder, um, who really sees it as an alternative. And I, I think probably in some ways he he is going to um, sort of define that that violence and power those things are not a reality in the way that we would they're in all reality in in the way would that we would say that the kingdom is another option to choose from no of course not um and yet they are the they are what most folks see as the only option that is available. And so in it, in that way, it is truly an alternative. Um, I used to preach it this way that I, I used to preach that it was an upside down kingdom and um, that Jesus, because I think Jesus is trying to turn all of our ideas about the way life works upside down on their head. Um, you know, uh, you've heard it said, but I tell you, um, 
uh, you, you, you know, the greatest among you is, is not the guy with the most money or the person with the most power. It's the child here, or it's the, the slave over there. Um, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. All of those are, are ideas that are meant to, to make you think differently about what's beauty and what's success and what's power and what's, um, and what's good and what's right. Um, but uh-huh. if if you're listening to it very closely, it would shock you out of what you would normally just take for granted. And that's what you mean by power. That's what Matthew means, and that's the the confrontation here. If you had to define power, I assume that you're linking it to violence. Well, it is violence, and and um, I told you earlier one of my one of my friends when he read the, the Matthew commentary said he was critical of it and said, I don't think that every passage is Matthew talking about violence. And this person um, also is uh, believes in Christian nonviolence, but I said, I think he is. And, and that violence is not just the kind of violence that, that is one person striking another or murdering another. Obviously it applies to that, but that all kinds of violence, anytime we, we do harm to one another, whether that's um, economic violence um, or, or cultural violence, political violence. Um, my reading of Matthew suggests that, that Matthew at all times is demonstrating how Jesus' kingdom undermines one of the great power structures of our society. And by power, I mean any time, any tool uh, someone wields in order to try to control the world around them, um, whether that's um, political powers, um, cultural powers, or religious powers. And, and those show up really nicely in the temptations of Christ. In the in the desert, every one of those, um, it, you know, um, takes him up on top of the temple. If you jump off this temple, um, uh, you, didn't it say that uh, you you would not stub your toe? Um, and of course, the devil uses uh, that passage um, in in the story. The devil uses that passage, uh, and not in quite in the way it was intended. Um, and yet uh, he's tempting Jesus to do a great religious act that would get a lot of attention, like many of the preachers we see with their billboards around us. Uh-huh. And um, he says, no, that's not the way that God has has wanted me to do this kingdom work by getting a lot of power and being popular and being a superhero. Um Maybe I should pause there that people that have not been to Atlanta may not appreciate that, uh, yeah. that you drive through Atlanta. Every, it seems like every preacher has his, uh, he and his wife, uh, the, the preacher and the first lady. And it seems like that Atlanta is just a bastion of health and wealth uh, sort of preaching. But maybe Atlanta is just typical. I'm I'm sort of down here in the middle of nowhere. Maybe I uh, yeah. uh, so I don't normally see preachers on billboards. Yeah, Central Missouri is. Um, uh, well, let me put this way: I think I think it's a difference between urban and rural uh, church culture. 
Um, and it's not just uh, prosperity theology, and it's not just um, black churches. The the um, the church growth movement, the sort of mega church movement, has similar um, similar, I guess, marketing schemes. They just it just looks a little different. And once you know what you're looking at, it's it that in itself is also pretty um, pretty blatant. But it it's subtle health. And it's wealth. subtle health and wealth, although it's not maybe not. No, yeah, <laughs> it's subtle. It's but subtle mis- me, prosperity. Yeah, I the way I defined it in the recent blog that uh, I, I did, and both people that read it seemed. <laughs> <laughs> I loved uh, it. <laughs> was the in other words, I was saying that sin is deployed as a means of salvation by definition that uh, in, in what you're describing as power. What power will always do is presume that the power will preserve you or secure you or, you know, establish the alter, you know, the kingdom that's not of God in and through the deployment of violence. So that sin by definition is to presume that we shall sin, that grace may abound. Right. That's Paul's formula that he repeats. Does that get your definition of, of power? Yeah, I think of of I think of power as a means of control that utilizes violence to achieve its ends. Some sort of violence. Um that violence works out in a lot of ways. Um, in 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 the story of Matthew himself, um, the the Levi, the tax collector, has been involved in um, violence done to the Jewish people by the Romans in unfair taxing. And then the reason that the uh, the Jews hated the tax collector is that the tax collector. Uh, made his living by lining his pockets by charging over uh, the Roman tax rate. So there was a there was a violence that was being done to families that was economic, um, and and for that matter, um, one of the there's a if you're going to read Matthew and you want to read an epistle that I think uh, tracks along the lines of it really well, then you read James. Uh, because James oh. makes some wonderful allusions to Matthew. Um, did you, it, it, when James is talking about the rich and the poor and how we would, we sometimes will lean towards the rich, that makes us judge us with evil motives. Our evil motive is we think we can get something from the rich as opposed to the poor. And James says, isn't it the rich who are taking, dragging you into court and suing you? And isn't it the poor that Jesus blessed? He stops and says that. Yeah. Now, in, in Matthew's gospel, he says, poor in spirit in the beatitude. However, when James quotes him, he says, blessed are the poor. He is talking about the poor. However, we define Just no call. who the poor are. The poor are those, we are all poor um, in that we need, we have needs. And so um, James recognizes the violence that is done by by economic systems um, uh, that 
promote uh i think growth capitalism is is a violent structure um that is designed to uh, take from one and give to another and at what the in the sermon on the mount and and in matthew then you have laid out we often take that uh and say well that's a you know that's not about what we're supposed to do. Uh, that's that's for Jesus, and he's God, and he can do this. But what you're describing then is that, well, no, actually what James and the other writers of the New Testament are saying is that the way one saved is through entry into this kingdom that Jesus is the ethics of this kingdom mm-hmm. is described then in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that the, um, and is it simply that it's a spiritual poverty or is it that in fact, uh, money is indicative in James of the reality of who's saved and who's not? Well, when, when Jesus talks about, no, those beatitudes are, are wonderful, you ever try to open up a sermon by saying something really shocking just to get people's attention? It used to be the cute youth ministers used to say the word sex. Now that I've got your attention, um, and it's just obnoxious, yeah. but the uh, Jesus opens up with these statements and it, he uses this word makarioi that you blessed are. Another way of saying is you've got it good. If you've got it good, if you're poor, now, now, he does say poor in spirit. When Luke says it, Luke says poor. I, I take it that Matthew is referring to the poor. Um, you've got it good if you're poor because the kingdom is yours. It's here for you. That's what he keeps saying. The kingdom is for you. You're here to inherit the kingdom. The kingdom is going, if, if you weep, the kingdom is going to dry those eyes. So, you, yes, it is he is talking about the poor, the oppressed. You've got it good if if you are hungry and thirsty for justice. Because if, if you have suffered injustice, because the kingdom is about justice. All of those, then he begins to talk about the kingdom. Now, the thing you mentioned, the idea you mentioned that Jesus was telling us we are not, this isn't for us to do. He's going to do it. In the Sermon on the Mount itself, Jesus has forbidden us from thinking that. Because in, in chapter 5, and there's a wonderful um, inclusio in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I can't remember which uh, book pointed this out to me, and probably everybody knows it, and it just blows me away, but it, it's maybe not as impressive to everyone else. But in, in Matthew 5, he when he, he talks about salt and light and, and what's, you know, um, uh, that being in the, the kingdom makes you different from other things, and that's going to make you stand out. And then he says, if, if any of you thinks for one minute that I've, that I've come to abolish the law, you're, you're wrong. Uh, and you're going to have to do the law and the prophets better uh, than the Pharisees mm-hmm. and the Sadducees. You're going to have to be more righteous. And then he goes on and on and on describing what that looks like until finally he comes to the golden rule, do unto others you would have them do unto you. And then he says, now that sums up the law and the prophets. That whole section 
is summing up what he takes the law and the prophets to be. And this is what salvation is. Not just this notion that, um, you know, I, I'm part of the law or I have the law or somebody has done the law for me, but that my life is going to be this kingdom life that is itself um, what it means to be saved. That's salvation. Participation. Participation in the kingdom of heaven yeah. that Matthew describes. Yeah. yeah. And and I, maybe we don't need to, to dwell on it because it's obvious that what, you know, the, the theology, that the reason people would presume that can't be the case in a Calvinist understanding is, oh, well, that's works righteousness. Uh, and, and, and you get that, I think, not just in Calvinism, but it goes, you know, it is there in Lutheranism, uh, that there is a theology that has already dismissed, I think, even going back to Anselm. That once you get this notion that uh, I, I just you know you can't resist saying well what you're presenting in this is precisely not satisfaction theory is precisely not penal substitution in other words it's almost you have to get rid of those understandings of what it means to be saved to say what you just said here's the way you're saved that you put off the sin orientation and you put on the ethics of the kingdom, not that these works save you, but that salvation is a set of practices that is depicted uh, by Jesus in the life of Christ and in the Sermon on the Mount. Right, which is exactly why James says, so show me somebody who's saved apart from what they do and I'll show you that I'm saved by what I do. That, And this is not a, an outward sign of an inward grace. This is an outward sign of a whole grace. <laughs> that that, right, that right. grace is... What we struggle with is, is thinking of salvation primarily as a what happens to us after we die sort of thing, as opposed to a what life is about sort of thing. And I'm all, I'm, I'm a big believer in resurrection. My, all my eggs are in that basket. Um, I don't want to think of this as the end of things here. Um, that said, uh, if, if you've, if you've pushed off salvation until that, then even apart from people's Calvinism, what I take is I don't want to live the sermon on the Mount. Because that doesn't sound like a great way to live. Because that, because turn when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, this is not a, a mamby pamby sort of exercise in being a, a foot a, a doorstep. But this is a, a very active uh, calling evil what it is, while still being willing to to not respond to it. Um, a friend of mine shared a quote today as a Frederick Buchner quote. I don't really know uh, Frederick Buchner, um, but uh, Buchner in this quote was saying something to the effect of 
that we want to put God over our principles. And he said, even the Christian pacifist knows that if it comes down to it, you'll have to pick up a baseball bat to stop someone that's going to uh, uh, brutalize a child. And um, otherwise, you're just putting your own principles over God. And I said, you know, I think he's really off there. Because if you follow Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the goal is not to stop the man hurting the child, at least not just to stop the man hurting the child. The goal is also not to hurt the man. And so I think Buchner himself might be putting his own principles over the uh, over God because Jesus himself on the cross is tempted to pick up the baseball bat. His answer is for God to put himself in the place of the child. And he calls us to do the same thing. Now, if that's the ethic, and I said, in essence, um, what the Christian pacifist should say is, you take me instead of the child, and I won't hurt you back either. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, that's, that's the ethic of the kingdom. Is it realistic? You tell me. I, it's, it's a different way of looking at life, and that is the salvation that will actually change the world. It's easy to want to stand up and fight. It's hard to want Mm -hmm. to kneel and die. Uh, It's repulsive. It's unworkable. Uh, It can't possibly be the case as long as you're looking through the lens of the understanding of the law of sin. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. which I think that gets it. Well, once you start reading the Gospels in that way, that this is a revolutionary kingdom that is being established. Now, let me ask you the where uh, you know when you talk about the kingdom, how does this kingdom relate to the church? Well, I, I think of the so um, a, a friend of ours who is a, a recent breast cancer survivor. Um, she was a children's minister uh, around the same time that Vanjie was, and they both lost their ministries. And when I say lost their ministries, I mean were really run out of ministries at about the same time. So this is a lady who she and her husband are very special to us. Um, she has had as much difficulty finding a church, I think, as we have. Um, she isn't always quite as ready to articulate it as, as we are, I think. She's a little more gracious than we are. Um, but she, um, one of the ways she has reinvented herself is she now is the proud owner of a floral shop and she does events and stuff. And, and um, she's just a, she's a pretty savvy businesswoman. She knows how to, she knows how to keep herself afloat. And, um, she she realized some time ago that you know her church really has become her place of work that's where the people are who are believers who she finds a certain sense of camaraderie and brotherhood with and sisterhood and um she asked us if we would come uh next sunday and um share in a worship service with her and her her folks that she works with there in the shop 
and to just sort of recognize that this is this has become our church. This is who we are. And Vanjie and I just thought that was just the most wonderful invitation that we could have. That it just she and she wanted us to be a part of it because she feels like we're part of her church, even though we don't get to see her that often. Church, the church as we see it practiced, I think is a shell. And that actual kingdom happens in bits and places within that shell. Um, I see what Jesus, part of the religious power structure that I think Jesus critiques, when I, when I read him, he's always trying to get his disciples to quit looking so with so much awe at the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the, and the temple He's always trying to get him to quit thinking about that. That's not that impressive, folks. It's just fancy clothes and people who think more highly of themselves than they ought to. Um, you should be impressed with this woman over here who just gave two coins. It was all she had left that nobody ever wants to touch. She probably smells bad, and she's wearing black clothes, and she's got nothing left, and she has nothing really to offer us. Um, churches we see it practiced. I, I can't call it the kingdom, but I think that the kingdom is happening in spite of it. And it, it it's an alternative community of people who believe in these, these ideas that in this kingdom idea that Jesus had, that's what I used to say. I couldn't find another way to say it when I would preach it. You know, this, this kingdom idea that Jesus was talking about all the time, it's so beautiful. It just doesn't catch on terribly well. Um, you know, and it doesn't because it's calling you to do things and be things that are not attractive. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, I think that the kingdom, the, the church, the way the new Testament tries to, tries to tell it to be, is supposed to be this, this beautiful community of people who love Jesus enough that they want to be like him with each other. And that that is, that is people sending friends money because they lost their job and they're trying to do something good in the world and they don't know how they're going to make it. That's the kingdom of God. That's, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's what we see working out in acts. Despite all of the horrible problems it is people loving and taking care of each other, not voting, not trying to get, you know, Rome to do it, even though I'm not opposed to government help for people, mostly because if the government's helping them, at least somebody is. But because our goal is to be salt and light in this world, it's a group of people that are trying to be a different community and are trying to be a witness to the coming kingdom that will be in the resurrection, the final manifestation of, of God's kingdom. That's what I see. And all this, I'm curious. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. In all this, I'm curious how Bonhoeffer plays into your picture of the kingdom in his, often what we picture as his religionless Christianity. Bonhoeffer is very special to me. Um, as he is very special to many people. Um, 
you recently did an article where you referenced his ethics and his ethics has a huge impact on my understanding of sin and, and salvation theology. Um, that said, um, I, I was reading Bonhoeffer uh, when I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount and you, you won't find a better friend for going through the Sermon on the Mount unless of course you have an aversion to dying in, in, in which case you're going to find Bonhoeffer troubling um, because Bonhoeffer really did believe as he read the Sermon on the Mount, that it was a call to, to be willing to give up your life. And I used to have, when I was reading um, the book we're reading is the cost of discipleship. When I was reading the cost of discipleship, I was so overcome by what I was reading that I had nightmares about being crucified. And um, because Bonhoeffer used that language. Because he says, yes. come and die. And, and, and he talks about it incessantly. I think Bonhoeffer in his time was preparing himself for that inevitability. Um, and so when he, much of the cost of discipleship is Bonhoeffer's running commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and for that reason it alone, it is, it is priceless. Um, but Bonhoeffer has a very sort of personal, um, costly take on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it's not, Jesus did it so that you don't have to. He calls that cheap grace. Yeah, yeah. And that may define the, I mean, he's faced with people who, the cheap grace Germans are those who are willing to see Hitler as the Messiah. Maybe the cheap grace Americans are those who are willing to sign up as patriots and, and in some way sign up for an American. That is that this, uh, in a sense, that the reading of the gospel that you're giving us and that gets that is there in the cost of discipleship is a picture, I think, of a theological presumption of... It, it it really is then the idea of working out your salvation with fear and trembling, not in the sense that, you know, salvation is works, but in the sense that we really have to live this thing out, uh, that salvation is a practice. You know, um, I, I think that's, I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly it. And I, I think, um, I think we see, we see examples of it here and there. Um, I've written on, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Colin Kaepernick. Um, I, I wasn't a huge fan of him as a football player, mostly because I'm not that interested in the National Football League. Um, but as a player, when he, when he started taking a knee about the, um, about the police violence – one of the and, and if for folks who who are confused about this, one of the cases that is being tried right now is of a police officer who riddled a boy's body with sixteen bullets while he laid on the ground by his squad car. Um, where are f- people the, the 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 Christian patriot that we see today? who is willing to, to 
assume that the victim uh, of that crime must have been guilty because this person protects my freedom is worshiping a very, because the police officer is protecting my freedom is worshiping a very different God than the one Bonhoeffer is, is reading in the sermon on the Mount. Um, and, and so, so Kaepernick takes a knee to protest that kind of violence and people stupidly, in my opinion, Uh, take this as an assault you know maybe it's not stupid they take it as an assault on on the principles of the flag in retrospect it is and it is a it is a judgment on the on the principles of the flag and the violence uh the the necessitation of violence in our culture Uh, now that i think about it i really am having a moment here now that i think about it they are it, it's no wonder they're so offended by it. But the thing about Kaepernick that has that has astounded me is he, his willingness to live with that decision and to lose his career over it. Um, now, the greatest among you, according to the NFL, is the guy who sticks it out and wins all the championships. That's the greatest among you. Kaepernick, and he's not hurting for money, I don't think, but... Kaepernick was willing to give all that up and he lost that. And to me, is it the perfect symbol of it? No. Mother Teresa is the perfect symbol of it, but it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good start. According to the, according to the gospel of Matthew, I think. I've been, there's a a biography that's just coming out, uh, come out of Larry Norman. You probably don't know who Larry Norman is. I, I feel like I should. Um, he, he is the father of, uh, Christian rock. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, um, and the, the, you can almost follow what happened with Christian rock music and describe what's happened, what happens so often, uh, in the kingdom. That is that Larry Norman, uh, began his career with this idea that, well, the church is this group of people it's not the institution uh it is you know he he was he was perhaps very kierkegaardian in his picture of a kind of militant christianity and that's portrayed in what was originally the fusion of christian rock and the the lyrics and the but of course that very quickly you know now every mega church does christian rock uh, it's no longer a militant sort of understanding, but it's an understanding. It's almost like the whole counterculture that for a time involved the Jesus movement is absorbed by this grand institution that I think is probably not Christ's kingdom, but by the very nature of what it does with militant Christianity, with a Colin Kaepernick kind of Christianity, is a sign then that here's not Sermon on the Mount sort of Christianity, but here's the Christianity that in some way would cash in, would keep, you know, would would uh, 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 co-opt or be co-opted by uh, the the signs of, you know, the what I would say is the very definition of sin, what you've described as the idea of 
success according to this world. Well, yeah, the um, here another great example of it in Matthew um, is right before the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew um, tells of Jesus going to see John the Baptist. And in all of the Bible, there are only a few people that I can remember that the, the biblical writer thought it was worth the paper to talk about their clothes. And I think Solomon, we read some about his clothes, um, particularly a reference to um, Solomon wasn't dressed as pretty as the flowers. But um, you stop and, and he tells a story about his clothes and his diet. And um, here's a guy whose every, who's every way of doing life is a critique of the structures of the world. So we define, we sort of backwards, um, um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, backwards engineer a, uh, a picture of what Christian culture then should look like. Or of what the world's culture is, the 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 world's culture is that you you dress a certain way in order to demonstrate a certain kind of status in the community. Therefore, this is why people should listen to you, and this is why why you have value within the community. Um, and it's the people with the the dirty, dingy clothes who have less, and the people with the super fancy clothes who have more. And Jesus even said that. Did you go out to see a guy in flowing clothes when you see John the Baptist? Who'd you go out there to see in the first place? Um, well, here's John the Baptist, and what's he wearing? He's wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and wild honey. He lives uh, like this crazy wild man out in the desert. He doesn't live in a castle. He doesn't live in a in a in the temple where. Um, and he was of a, tree, a priestly tribe. Uh, and, a, and a family, um, a priestly course. So he could have been that, but he rejected all that. Um, and so he rejected that status, that power structure that does violence to people who have less. Now, Christian rock, and I grew up listening to it. Um, Bono from U2 and God in his song, God part two says, I don't believe in rock and roll can really change the world as it spins in revolutions, spirals and turns, but I believe in love. Um, the, the, the whole thing um, as, as it becomes a show can't help, but be tied to the kind of cultural power structure of, of the world. And the more it appeals to, the more massively it appeals, um, the less like the kingdom it's likely to be. And I, I don't know a way to say that other than because I, I know that there are good kingdom people who have large followings. I know that that's true, but I don't think you get it through attract through attraction. Yeah, that we should be suspicious of the crowd gathering, and that's certainly true in the book of yeah. But we hope there's a crowd that gathers for this <laughs> class. Can you give us the details on? Uh, yeah, the uh, <laughs> the of- class is going to be. I think the class is going to be fun. Um, it's reading. I, I'm not making it super video heavy, um, even though I have lots to say about it. I'm not sure that it's it would be in, in this case. Um, beneficial just to sit and listen. Um, the classes, uh, more so than other ones I've taught, 
designed to be very interactive. Um, it's not got a huge um, uh, research project or anything like that. It does have a group project in that the group will be putting together a sort of Wikipedia-style article on the kingdom of heaven that Matthew describes. It's kind of one of those things that's hard to get wrong, um, but some people do it uh, pretty well, actually. Um, the uh, uh, it's, it's a lot of just reflection and discussion on on what we're reading. And I want to, I've been, I've wanted to put a lot of personal reflection in it. Um, questions like, so the people that, that Matthew uh, tells us that Jesus is speaking to here, um, who are they? And what do you suppose they're thinking? Put yourself in their mind, in their place for a minute. What do you suppose they're thinking? Now think, how do you respond to this? Um, those kinds of questions. Um, I'm thinking of it more as a, a reflective reading of the, the gospel itself and also of the texts that we're, that we're reading. Uh, with Hauerwas and Bonhoeffer, it's impossible for it not to be good. With Matthew himself, um, I, uh, is there a stronger word than impossible? I read, I, when I preached through the book of Matthew, I got done and I felt like Matthew was my friend. I'm, he's, he's one of the people I want to meet in the resurrection. I'm afraid, though, he'll say, no, you got it all wrong and just want to throttle me. But I, 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 think that, I think that he may, even if I've gotten things wrong, he may, uh, he may forgive me. So. And this starts October 1st, is that correct? Can. Yeah, um, I think we're, uh, it, it'll be a more, um, it'll be a more fun project if we've got a few people to participate in it. Um, I'm really excited about it. All right. We'll, uh, well, hopefully uh, uh, we get uh, somebody to talk about it with. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.